Welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in three, two, one. If uh, you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. It's always good to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, that's your Bible. We want you to take it home. And uh, so Hebrews chapter 11, it's near the back of the New Testament. If you don't know where it is, just don't feel funny looking in the table of contents. Uh, we, we want you to do that. We want you to follow along. Hebrews chapter 11. Bob Mankoff is the cartoon editor for the New Yorker magazine. Uh, re- literally, this is one guy who you could say his job is a laugh a minute. I mean, that's what he does. That's his, that's his job. New Yorker has published more than 80,000 cartoons since uh, its initial inaugural issue in 1925. In fact, uh, the magazine has long been known for its sophisticated New York sarcastic wit. Uh, in an interview two years ago with Morley Safer on 60 Minutes, Mankoff said that there's one character that appeared, appeared more than any other in the cartoons of the New Yorker magazine since 1925, and I bet you nobody here knows who it is. Unless you get the New Yorker magazine, then maybe you do. It is the Grim Reaper. You know the Grim Reaper with the, you know, the hoodie, the black hoodie, and the bones, and the sickle, and stuff like that? Uh, he has appeared more times on the funny pages of the New Yorker than anyone else. Um, and for instance, uh, you know, recently they had a cartoon, uh, the Reaper's latest acquisition. She's sitting there, and she says, thank goodness you're here. I can't accomplish anything unless I have a deadline. Which is, yeah, that's kind of like my reaction, too. It's like, you know, uh, but that's your typical cartoon from the New Yorker. And Matkoff told 60 Minutes, he said this, he said, honestly, if it wasn't for death, I don't think there would be any humor The Grim Reaper uh, is going to get the last laugh, but until then, it's our turn. So much of Scripture, it seems, uh, was written to and about people, as you look at it, and I've looked at it for a long time now, written about people who were suffering, people who were really having a hard time, people whose families had been splintered who were in nations that were torn by war, enslaved, carried off into exile, marital tensions, parent-child trauma. Every form of suffering and challenge and problems known to man are illustrated or seem to be illustrated on the pages of the Old and New Testament Scripture. Why? Because it's real-life stuff. It is real-life stuff. The people who fill the pages of the Bible understood upfront and personal that life can sometimes be very brutal. The brutalities of life, shattered relationships, mental breakdowns, injustice, hardships of every kind, and death. See, they got it. I'm not sure they were laughing. I'm not sure there were funny pages back then laughing. But they got it. And we get it. We get it. The book of Hebrews, if you look at it, is a a catalog, in a sense, of human suffering. It was written to people who were suffering. People who were so beaten down with difficulties, with problems, with troubles, with death, that they were ready to give up. And these were folks like us. 
These were believers. These weren't people that he was trying to win over. They were, they were like us. They were believers. And the writer of Hebrews answers the question that every single person here, you know, if you could, you'd write me out a $1,000 check. If anybody writes checks anymore, I'm not sure. I think everybody uses their, a lot of people use now their smartphones. But if you, however you were going to get me a 1000 bucks, even if the check bounced, you would write it out to me if I could answer one question, just one question for you this morning. And here's the question. What is the one thing that I need to face the challenges of life and the inevitability of death? I would pay a thousand bucks for that. In fact, I'd pay a lot more than a thousand bucks for that. I think most people would. If, if, if you have it, if you have what we're about to talk about this morning, I, you know, I got to tell you, I think you can handle anything that life throws at you. Anything that life throws at you, and hint, 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 it's not humor, okay? It's not laughing at death. So then what is it, and how do we get it? What is the one thing that you need to face all the challenges of life? Now you say, well, you know, we're in church, he's a pastor, he's going to save faith. In fact, we just read a whole chapter on faith, right? Everybody says, you know, by faith they did this, by faith they did that, okay? In amazing Hebrews chapter 11, amazing examples of people of faith. By this faith, they did this. By their faith, they did that. Uh, you know, from the very beginning in the, in, of the chapter, it says, flatly, without faith, it's what? It's impossible to please God. But what kind of specific faith are we talking about here? It is not, here's something I'm going to tell you right off the bat. It is not a general kind of nebulous out there faith, and you know, that people have, a lot of people have, well, I have faith, I believe. I believe, it's not, you know, this isn't Polar Express, okay, Tom Hanks, you know, only believe. I know it's Christmas time, but it's not that, okay? It is a specific, uh, specific faith that allowed the early Christians to sing, even though they were afraid, even though they, they had fear, were able to sing as they were thrown to the lions, as they were cast in prison, as they faced, un, you know, certainly death, you know, an uncertain future at, at, at the best. The specific object of hope that the writer was talking about, he begins to talk about in verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if you have noticed, you might have noticed when, when Liz was up here, that uh, if you look at the last part that she read, uh, verses 32 through 38, there were, there were two lists, two listing of names. And we, there's a radical, radical division uh, between the two lists that she was reading before. Now, I want to look at, let's look at those in, in the first part, the first list for first, you know, the, the uh, verses 32 through 35a list. All of the people listed in 32 through 35a, are characterized by one fact. Their weakness is turned to strength. They started out on the margins. They, they, they started out, you know, without any power. They started out defeated. And, and they end up winning. They end up in triumph. They, they, they ended up with a happy ending. I call them the happy enders. They experienced a military, political triumph. They conquered kingdoms. They routed armies. They administered justice. They escaped the edge of the sword. And in all of these cases, they looked like they were finished. They looked like they were going to end up a big loser. But in the end, they came out on top. They experienced a happy ending. Folks, this is the stuff of adventure stories, i got to tell you. you know, this is why people buy comic books. This is it. Uh, one, one clothed the mouth of lions. Do you remember who that was in the Old Testament? Who was it? 
It was Daniel. Daniel, remember he was thrown into the, de- uh, the lion's den? He was a godly man of extraordinary integrity who was uh, set up for, for death by a jealous competitor. And he was thrown into the lion's den. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar really didn't want to throw him in the lion's den because he really loved Daniel. And, and he was pacing all night. And then he ran out the first morning and said, Daniel, as your God saved you. And what did Daniel say? Yeah, he has, basically paraphrased. And they put down a ladder and, and he came out. And it says this, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Miracle, escape, intervention, certain death turned into a happy ending. Now you look at verse 34. It says, some quenched the fury of the flames. You know who that was? In the Old Testament, again, it was Daniel's three friends in Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They looked Like they were finished too. They were bound. They were thrown into a superheated furnace for refusing to bow down to foreign gods. But they walked out without a single mark. But the best one for me is verse 35. See, it says this. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. That's that's as good as it gets, okay? Who were these people? Well, in the Old Testament, there's a couple, a couple of women whose sons had died and received them back by the power of God. You got, you got the widow of Zarephath in Elijah's ministry in 1 Kings 17. Then was, there was the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4 in the ministry of Elisha. And through the power of God, though her son was dead, he was raised back to life. And folks, as I said a second ago, that is as good as it gets. I mean, that's as good as it gets. I, I mean, they, they, they were dead and they came back to life. And in every single one of these situations, in 32 through 35a, these guys, these people faced overwhelming odds. Death was imminent or had already occurred. And in every single instance, they called on God and a miracle happened. They escaped. It ended with a happy ending. You like those stories? Some of you don't. I, I do. I don't know. I, I, I like them a lot. I mean, uh, I, I, we love those stories. Those stories resonate with us. They are great stories of faith, stories where men were endowed by God with strength beyond what was natural, and he enabled them to overcome in the face of insurmountable odds. Happy ending. Happy ending. You know, the guy gets up in church, right, usually around Thanksgiving time, and he says, uh, you know, the doctor said I had three months to live. I prayed. We prayed. The church prayed. People on Facebook, hundreds of people prayed. That was 10 years ago. And I'm still here. And, and you know what? They, they said I had, a, I had three, weeks to, three months to live. You know what? They can't explain it. Don't you love those stories? I've heard stories like that. I've heard a number of them. And I love them. Or, or you know, my business was down and out. We were ready to close down, but then we prayed, others prayed, and a week later, we got this contract that came in that we had no business getting this contract. There was no way we were going to, I figured we were going to be six or eight or ten in line, and somehow we got it, and it saved our business, and we moved forward. See, we moved from weakness to strength. I've heard a lot of stories like that, great stories, trusting God, happy ending. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with those stories. There are many Christians today whose concept of faith is grounded deeply and only in happy endings. 
That is, you pray hard enough, you believe you know, deep enough, you get a lot of people to do the same on your behalf, everything in the end is going to turn out fine. Everything is going to have a happy ending. It looks like you were a loser. Looks like you wouldn't end up on the short side of the stick, short end of the stick. But you know what? You're a winner. And God preserved you. And there was a happy ending. Now listen, I have to tell you this. If that is where your faith begins and ends, folks, you're in a heap of trouble. You are in a heap of trouble. And you will absolutely, this is not, I'm, this is not conjecture. I'm going to tell you something right now, a a truth statement. It's true all the time. If that is your faith, if that's where you are, you will reach a point, a crisis of faith point in your life where you will either have to go deeper into the truth of real, full faith, or you will crumble. There is no middle section. There is no middle ground when we're talking about this. Does God in his grace ever provide the kind of happy endings on earth like the stories that we read about in 32, 35a and the couple of illustrations that I just gave you? Does he ever do that? Of course he does. What is your reaction when he does stuff like that? Hallelujah! Right? Praise, I get Pentecostal when I hear your stories like that. I feel like dancing in the spirit. I really do. When I hear stories like that, I, just, I praise the Lord and I say, God, thank you so much for that. Thank you for that. Thank you that you heard the prayers of your people. And that happy ending, that happy ending, as we define happy, is a good thing. It's a a great thing. But if you read verse 35b, second second half of uh, verse 35, to the end of the chapter, you're going to see something else. You are going to see the other side, what I call the other side of faith. Because in addition to those who routed armies, in addition to those who, who delivered, was delivered from lions, who came through insurmountable odds, the flames were licking at, you know, at their feet, and they came out unsinged. People who, you know, you fill in the blanks. You fill in your life. There are those whose lives, 35B on to the end of the chapter, who were almost continually punctuated by suffering. And others whose lives ended prematurely, what we would consider prematurely. There are those who endured unspeakable, intense suffering, and some who never came out alive. And folks, I have to tell you, when I was a kid growing up in Sunday school, good church, growing up in Sunday school, I don't remember any of those stories. I remember a lot of the Daniels, you know. I remember, you know, David. You know, David and Goliath. I remember those stories. I don't remember the other, the other ones, but you know what? And, you know, and they were killed. What? We don't hear that. If you think that if I work hard, if I believe hard, that things are always going to work out and I will escape and experience a happy ending on earth, you are doomed. You're doomed. When I was about 20 years old, I read the autobiography of Johnny Erickson. Do you know Johnny Erickson? Johnny Erickson, who one day, one summer, dove into the Chesapeake Bay, broke her neck, and became a quadriplegic. She was 17 years old, and by all accounts, she was athletic, she was charismatic, she was beautiful. This young girl, 17 years old, and all of a sudden, in one instant, she was faced with the prospects of living in a wheelchair for the rest of her life, and she knew it. And to add insult to, in, to devastating injury, she had some well-meaning 
friends. Remember the friends of Job? You know, you kind of like, uh, these are friends, right? She had friends like that show up at her bedside soon after she had this devastating accident. She said, and they said, Johnny, if you believe and have faith, God will heal you. And, 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 and you'll, you'll have a happy ending too. And you'll walk again. And if you aren't healed, maybe it's because your faith isn't deep enough. Her friends and their understanding of faith ended conceptually in verse 35a, the beginning of verse 35. They believed that if you had enough faith, you're always going to escape the flames. You're always going to come out on top. You'll, you, you know, the miraculous stories you hear, that's not the exception. That is the rule of faith. See, that's what, that's what these people think. That is the rule of faith. And when you hear those great miraculous stories, there's always a sigh. There always is, uh, isn't God good, happy ending. Fortunately, even though, you know, their words heaped on her initially additional pain and anguish, Johnny ultimately didn't believe them, and she came to a mature understanding of faith. Now, in the middle of verse 35, there is that other list, and the other list begins with a single word in the English, the word others, others. There are others who believed Others who had faith, others who trusted, others who obeyed God, yet their life went in an entirely different direction than the list at the top from verse 32 to 35. Like, like John the Baptist. John the Baptist who was arrested, he was thrown into prison, and, and his disciples, they prayed and they prayed and they prayed for his release. They prayed to God for this righteous, godly man. And one night, at a drunken party, King Herod had his head delivered on a platter at the request of his wicked stepdaughter. I, I, I said that King David belongs and, in fact, is in the first part of that list. You know, up, a couple of verses up. But there were others, like his dear best friend. Remember his best friend in the Old Testament? Jonathan. Remember Jonathan? And, 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 and Jonathan was King Saul's son. And Jonathan was noble. And Jonathan was powerful. And Jonathan had a robust faith in God. And he was faithful to David, even to the point of, you know what, uh, being more faithful to David than he was to his own father, who was going out of his mind at that time. And when his father found out, he almost killed his own son because he, he, he felt he was betraying him. This, this is who Jonathan was, a loyal, loyal, incredible young man. But you know what? He lost everything, and he died young in a hopeless battle many, many miles away from home. David trusted God, and he had a happy ending. He escaped the edge of the sword. Jonathan, his dearest, dearest friend in life, trusted God, and the Philistines killed him, and they took his body, and they hung it on a wall until it rotted. Verse 35b says this. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. That's Isaiah. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. That's what they did at the Roman circus to the Christians. 
destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. For every one after the word other, in verse 35, everything went south. Everything. They trusted God, but you know what? There was no escape. There was no intervention. There was no happy ending as we define happy. No last minute in the nick of time miracles. No, the cavalry didn't you know, charge in at the last second. Now, here's the problem with the exclusive happy ending type of faith. And here it is. I think about it. It's all about us. See, the happy ending is all about me. That kind of faith is a faith in my agenda for God, not in God's agenda for me. See, see, I, I, I need you, God, to help me get out of these things right now. If you help me get through this rough spot right now, you know what? Uh, and I'm trusting you that I can move ahead with my agenda, with my plans for life. You see, reading through the lists, you might think that the people at the top of the list had more faith than the people at the bottom of the list, and you would be wrong. You'd be wrong. Go back to verse 34 again. It makes reference to uh, those who quenched the fury of the flames. We already talked about these guys, right? An obvious reference to the three Jewish boys in the Old Testament who were Daniel's friends with. You know, the king said, bow down. Oh, you're going to have this horrible death in the furnace. And do you know what, you know what they said in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16? They said this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Well, there you go. Got enough faith in God? God's going to deliver you, right? You, you, you're thinking right now, well, you just, you, you're not proving your, your, your point here. God is able. Pastor Tim, you don't have enough faith. He is able. He will deliver me. Wait a minute. Read on. Verse 18. This is the same reply. But even if he does not... We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. You know what he was saying? He was saying, O king, we know that God can deliver us from death. He can deliver us from suffering. In fact, we kind of have a hunch that he might do that here. But even if he doesn't, even as when you throw us into the flames, we are burned to a crisp. Our lives are not rooted in our agenda. They are rooted in God's agenda for us. We don't have an agenda for God, for us. We're seeking out God's agenda for us in our lives. We think God's going to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will trust him. I hear people all the time say to me things like, I trusted God so much. I really, we really prayed for this. We prayed diligently. I, you know, we, we prayed every week. We prayed every day, and he didn't come through for me. You know, I trusted God. He didn't come through. Things just didn't work out. No, you didn't. You, you, you didn't trust him. What you were doing was trusting in your agenda for God, for you. That's what you were putting your trust in. That's where your trust was. It was your agenda for God. And I think that's something that's so important that we need to remember, folks, because a lot of our heartache kind of goes back to that. 
We all have a way that, you know, we think our lives are supposed to go. Everyone has painted out their lives. You know, when you're 15 years old, you say, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to this college. I'm going to marry this kind of person. And then we're going to do this. We're going to live in this kind of house and this, this village. And, you know, mom and dad will be down the block and blah, 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 and the whole thing. And then, you know how many people really get, when you're 15 and you're dreaming about what's going to happen, you know how many people, probably close to zero, really close to zero, uh, the people who, whose lives they, they planned out, in my experience, and it turns out that way. Well, we all have this, this thing in our minds of how God, how God is going to work and how God, what God's supposed to do. And what we try to do then from that time on is try to get God on board with our agenda, with where we, where we want to go. And let me say this. Those with a strictly happy ending type of faith outlined in verses 32 through 35a are destined for heartbreak and for disappointment and for sadness once the brutalities of life, including death, sets in and you see that God did not perform in the way that you thought he should perform. You're in for a very hard time. Happy ending people, and this is the thing that's so insidious, they really think they're trusting God. They really do. But we kid ourselves sometimes. What we are trusting in is our agenda for God. God didn't come through for me. God obviously didn't hear my prayers. God is not a loving God. I've been told all my life that God is a loving God. That's because they have an immature faith and they have settled into a happy ending kind of faith. So what was it? What was it that brought about the, the faithful ending people in verse 35b to 38? You know, what, what brought them through to the very end? And, and at the very end, they're still believing, they're still trusting, they still have their faith intact, even when they're facing death. Well, it's, it, it, it's found in verse 35. It says this. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Do you know what they were looking for? As they tied them and they threw them to their deaths. You know what they, were, that, uh, they had a hope for? They had a hope for a better resurrection, for something better than this life. They believed that not all funerals led to death. They had a firm hope and a belief that at the end of this present life, there was life as it was always meant to, believe, uh, to, to be. They believed in resurrection. For the believer at the end of life, there was a firm hope, a firm hope in a better resurrection. When I was uh, in school and taking uh, preaching courses, I remember one thing that Haddon Robinson, my mentor, uh, told us right, you know, near the beginning. He said that sometimes it's really good when you go to prepare a sermon, you're writing it, however you, you know, we, we hadn't even learned how to do it yet. He said, you know, sometimes it's good to sit down when you wor work on a sermon and the best thing to do is write out your conclusion. Before you do anything else, you, you're not getting anything else, any stories, and you're not even looking at the text. You say, basically, you're saying, you know what? Here's where I'm going. Because if you know where you're going, it changes, everything. It changes the entire route. It changes how you get to that ending. If you don't know where you're going, you're like, you could, be, you could end anywhere. I mean, really, you could end anywhere, wherever the wind takes you. Uh, newsflash, newsflash, at the end of the journey comes the Grim Reaper. That's what the scripture says. I was reading in Isaiah on Tuesday morning of this week, my daily reading, and it was in a really dry section, uh, you know, through the Bible in a year kind of thing. And I said to God, why am I reading this? 
This, this is, you know, it's about Tarshish and this, and they're going to come in, and they're swooping down. And I don't really care, you know what? Honestly, right now, I don't care. I'm thinking about other things. I'm thinking about Christmas Eve. I got a lot of things in my mind right now. The insurance company overcharged me. I was all ticked off about that, and I was sitting up there. You know, and I, got, I usually go right up, you know, first seat over there on the left, and I, you know, a lot of times I sit there early in the, in, in the morning. And so I'm reading it, and I came, you know, it's, it's a... You know, but the reason I ended up reading it is because I needed to make that check mark. Because if I can't do the check mark, you know, I'm just all discombobulated. I got, you know, there's something about the check mark that's very therapeutic for me. Anyway, so I, that's a great reason to read scripture, isn't it? So you can check off. Yeah, that's, I know that. That's really good. Anyway, I, I, I came to Isaiah chapter 25 in speaking of that time when the Lord will return. When Jesus Christ will return and put his feet on the holy mountain. And it says this in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers the nations, and he will swallow up death forever. Do you know what a shroud is? You know what a shroud is. It's a burial garment. And he talks about this shroud, this this burial garment, as sort of hanging on people. I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at this, and I'm going... You know, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, imagine, you know, when you were a kid and you were a ghost for Halloween and you put a sheet on and, and your mother wouldn't give you a good sheet. You know, you had, you know, let's find something really bad. And, and you put the two holes in, then your arms were stuck. Either, either you wanted to be really, you know, authentic and your arms were inside and you had to kind of do this. Or the, you put holes in, in the sides. And, 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 but it, it's a very, you know, and then the, the eye holes are like this about, you know, halfway through. And, you're, you know, it's very uncomfortable to have this thing over your head, though. It's very uncomfortable walking around and trying to do normal stuff with a blanket over your head, isn't it? Very uncomfortable. And he's saying that people, everybody who's ever lived, every nation that has ever formed, they live with a blanket over their heads, he's saying in Isaiah chapter 25. Because, you know what? In the back of our brains, there's this unyielding understanding of the Grim Reaper. This is understanding that one day it's all going to end. Nations come and nations go. I was looking at a map of the world from 1900 and then looking at a map of the world from 2016. Very different map. Very, very different map. There is an expiration date on nations as there is on people. And you know what? In our quiet moments, we think about that. Mostly we entertain ourselves. But sometimes we, we think about that. And no matter how many jokes we make or how many inventive ways we develop to look past the graveyard and whistle as we're walking past it, we know it's coming. It's inevitable. There is no escape. But the Bible says, this is what the Bible says. After the grim reaper, after the end, comes the beginning. Here is another truth for every Christian. A truth that if we not only believe, not only believe it, but embrace it, will change everything. It is the resurrection. It has long been a foundational belief of Christians. You know, if you, when's the last time you read through the book of Acts? If you read through the book of Acts, I read through it you know, some time ago. And you got to read through it kind of in, in, in one or two settings to really understand, to really feel this. I could not believe the number of times that Christians, whenever they shared their faith, do you know they always mention the resurrection? How many times do you, when you share your faith with somebody do you mention the resurrection? Uh, uh, I th- yeah, yeah, I think I did one time. Every time they shared their faith, they were talking about the resurrection. It was front and center in, in their doctrine, in their theology, in their beliefs, and it helped them to be victorious over the brutalities of their life 
and of their coming death. They were a people that believed that one day they would rise again to a better resurrection. They believed it, and they held it close to them, and they wanted everybody else to understand and know it too. As people one by one left them, leaving gaping holes in their hearts, their belief in the resurrection put everything in perspective. They believed in the resurrection of the body. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. He said, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. We know the body of Jesus, when he resurrected, very, very much like our own. It could do some kind of neat things, but he ate. He, he, he sat with, with, with his disciples. It was, it was similar but different. You know what? I believe that's what's going to happen with us. That our physical bodies, and we will know one another. We're going to talk about this a little next week as we finish up the series. We will know one another. When we get to that time, when, when the resurrection and the great hope of the Christian is made sure. You know, what? and I was reading down in Isaiah. I told you I was reading Isaiah chapter 25. And he says this. Right after he said, you know, uh, what is, uh, right after he said, you know, on this mountain, I'm going to destroy the shroud. He says this in verse 8. He says, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all their faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Folks, I have to tell you something. Not all funerals lead to death because the believer, the believer has a firm hope at the end in a better resurrection. They did, and we must. We don't have, and it's not a kind of, you know, fairy tale hope in life after death. We know that death is going to be reversed. We know that death as Christians is going to be defeated. We know that someday resurrection and a new heaven and a new earth will appear. And we're going to get everything that we lost. Everything that we willingly everything that we willingly gave up, he will bring back tenfold. And we will be with those that we love forever and ever. And we're gonna get our lives back, and we're gonna get our love back. And we're going to get our world back far better than it ever was. So don't flinch. If you are in the second part of Hebrews chapter 11, do not flinch and don't fall back because we believe in resurrection and not some nebulous hope that maybe things will get better. But I think there's more. I got to tell you, I think there's more. Remember the story of, uh, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 11, where Jesus' good friend Lazarus dies. Remember that? Uh, and, and Lazarus dies, and he's buried in the tomb. And Jesus walks in. He kind of hesitated for a while. He was, he was nearby. He hesitated, and he walks into town, and he's met by Lazarus' older sister, Martha, who is destroyed by her brother's death, just absolutely destroyed. And, and, and Jesus looks at her, and she's weeping, and she's crying. And, and, and you know, she, she said, Lord, if you had been here, if only you 
have been here. Oh, I wish it worked out that you could have been here. And Jesus looked at him. He says, your brother will rise again. He will rise again. And I can picture Martha with that look on her face that I have seen when my kids were little, when we're at the mall, and they say to me, Dad, can we have ice cream? And I said, yes. Tonight after you finish dinner, we, can, yeah, we're gonna, we got some ice cream in the freezer, and you can have ice cream then. And it's almost like, okay, it's, you know, that's good. I mean, it's really, it's, it's kind of what I want, but it's really, I want it now. It's, it's that, that kind of thing. And in verse, uh, in verse 24, Jesus is talking with, with her, and he says, you know, you know what? Your brother will rise again. And this is Martha's reply in verse 24 of, of John chapter 11. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. See, there was a little like, yeah, I know. That's a good thing. We're going to have ice cream. I know. One day, you know, a few hours from now, we'll have ice cream. But you know what? I got to tell you. She was right. Martha had her theological house in perfect order. There was a common Jewish belief that was defended by the Pharisees and resurrection. But at that moment, at that very moment, that would brought her comfort to think that it was not totally over, that she would see her brother again, her heart was grieving. It was grieving, and she needed more than future tense promises. She needed more. It, that was going to happen, and she knew it was going to happen at some far distant day. See, her, her belief in future resurrection was correct. It just wasn't enough to dry her tears that day. Do you remember the story? You know, sometimes I have been comforted by the fact that, in, you know, like in the words of Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, after all, tomorrow is another day. And sometimes, you know, I, you know, I think about that. And, uh, you know, I, when I think about that, I, keep, I try to keep my head in the game and my emotions in check and, and, and my wits about me till this time tomorrow. And, you know, it'll probably get better. You know, a lot of times it does. A lot of times, a lot of times it really does get better. Uh, but sometimes when things have gotten really bad, I've not been able to get past the, tw the, the next 12 minutes let, her, let alone the next 12 hours or the next 12 days. I need hope now. Right now. I think Jesus knew that. So Jesus turned a future hope, into a, which was real, into a present reality. And he looked at her in verse 25 and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus was saying something. More than one day you're going to see your brother and you will be resurrected. He was saying, don't think of me as someone who could you know, just bring about resurrection in isolated incidents one day in the future at the great judgment. Don't think of me merely as that. He deliberately in that verse used a present tense verb. You know what that means? That means that right now, tomorrow, and into the future, I am the resurrection. I am the life. It's true that those who believe in me will not be left in the tomb, but more than that, those who believe in me will experience resurrection and life right now. Resurrection power and rescue from a dead life is what it means to be associated with me. Martha, Martha, it's not just a vague future confidence. It is a present reality and a present fact. I can make dead things come alive right now. Dead relationships, bad dreams. I can turn it around. And I receive glory 
through resurrections. Martha, you have a basic confidence and faith in me. That's good. But I am more than who you think I am. I'm more than who you think I am, Martha. There's something about knowing me that will exceed the hope that you have on the day of judgment. I bring a present reality to your future victory over death right now on this Sunday morning. And so Jesus looks at this woman. Now, you gotta, you got to remember something. He loves Martha. He loves Martha. And he looks at her, and he looks into those eyes, stained with tears. And in verse 26, he says this to Martha. Martha, do you believe this? And I think all of heaven held its breath as she was about to give her reply. Martha, do you believe me to be the one who could make dead things live? Do you believe that I'm the one who can give life? With this question, he brought her to a question of personal faith. The kind of faith that, that, that saves is, is not, it's not inherited from a grandparent. It just isn't. Well, my, my, grand, my grandfather used to go to church regularly. My mother did. My mother would. She never missed mass. She never did. You know, whatever. Uh, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Although Jesus is life, he's not life for everyone. That's right. It, it, it wasn't enough that Martha understood her theology. She had a great need to believe that somehow she could overcome her greatest enemy, which was death. Death that came as a result of sin, the Bible says. But that could only happen. That could only happen if she figured out a way to get right with God. Jesus said, I am the way. I'm about to build a bridge in the shape of a cross that will get you from the land of the dying to the land of the living today. Today. So Jesus looked at her and said, well, Martha, what do you think? What do you think? And she said in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. Now, did she understand the full impact of that statement? Probably not. You know, at that point. You know, but even though her faith may have been imperfect, she grasped the central truth upon which her faith could and would grow that Jesus Christ is the one sent by God the Father to bring resurrection life to things that are dead. She understood that. It's the same for us today, folks, i got to tell you. We have to come to the one who is the resurrection and the life, one who is Lord over death. We cannot be saved and we cannot grow until we see Jesus for who he really is. Jesus was about to prove himself to be the master of resurrection and the master of life. Perhaps you've pronounced a relationship in your life dead. And in fact, in your mind, it's buried. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Not all funerals lead to death. You may have already pronounced it dead. Threw dirt on it, and it's over. But Jesus says, wait a minute, I specialize in resurrections. I also believe in the resurrection of dead lives. I do. I do know this. The comfort in the Bible 
worked for those who received it, and they were about to be thrown into the lion's den because they went singing. We know that. We get a flat tire today in 2016, and we cry, oh, God, why me? You know, why, why me? You know, they were tied to stakes and lit on fire singing, not because they had lost their minds, but because their minds had been renewed by the glory that would one day be revealed in them. And they were able to face anything. Folks, not all funerals lead to death. For the believer, listen, for the believer, at the end of life is a firm hope in a better resurrection. Because that's what God does. He reclaims. He renews. He salvages. He resurrects dead things and makes them new. He, t- he looks at the smoldering wreck, which is your life. The smoldering wreck. And nobody knows it because everyone sees you know, the cleaned up version. But you know what's going on inside. And, and, and you're saying to yourself every single day, I'd be lucky to get out of here alive. But when we take one step towards him, one step, Luke chapter 15, remember? One step the prodigal son took towards his father, and his father picked up his skirt and ran to his son. That's what God wants to do. That's the love of the father. That's why Jesus came to die for our sins, and he covers our nakedness, and he puts his sandals on our feet, our bruised feet, and he puts the family signet ring on our finger. He will do that. He came, it says in 1 John, to destroy the works of the devil, works that we used to traffic in. We don't have to make jokes to somehow anesthetize ourselves to death. We have a real hope because we know not all funerals lead to death. Alice Matthews, another one of my mentors, in uh, one of her books, refers to the ancient story told in many lands about a mythical bird sacred to the sun called the phoenix. Let me read. This huge bird, covered with an iridescent rainbow of gorgeous feathers, had no equal on the earth. Not only was there no bird as beautiful, but none sang so sweetly nor lived so long. The storytellers could not agree on the age of the phoenix. Some saying it lived for 500 years, others more than 12,000 years. When the great bird came to the end of its life, it made itself a nest of twigs from spice trees, set it on fire, and along with the nest was totally consumed. Nothing remained except a scattering of ashes on the burnt earth. But then, as the story is told, a breeze caught those ashes, and somehow from them arose another phoenix, a new firebird even more splendid than the one that had died. He would spread his wings, they said, and would fly up to the sun. Alice Matthews wrote this. The storytellers spun this myth in the hope that somehow it could possibly be true. They spoke to something deep within each of us, The longing that out of the destructive tragedies of life, something better and more magnificent might come. What the storytellers could only imagine contains a truth of which Jesus Christ is the reality. Just as the more glorious phoenix can rise only from the ashes of its dead self and ruined nest, so great faith rises only from our dashed hopes and ruined dreams. Not all funerals ultimately lead to death. You know what I believe? I believe that at the end, we will be resurrected. I believe in the resurrection of the body. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son. 
I believe.